And then when it's revealed that he, of course, is, like, in the martial arts film tradition, like, the strongest guy in the room, yeah. like, all of a sudden he just, like, kicks a guy, like, just a little bit, and the guy goes, like, flying across the room, and you're like, ooh. I, I always love that reveal, because, you know, it's it's kind of like in the softcore, even, I guess, the porn, when the, the chick, the bookworm chick, like... Takes off the glasses and lets the hair down, and then she's the hottest, sexiest, sluttiest one, you know? The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Well, tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of the hosts. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us is tasked with picking a theme for the week and then the other two hosts have to find some films in response to that theme and program a double feature and you know when we when we get films picked for the week sometimes we're nice and sometimes we're naughty and dear god (laughs) we were very naughty this week however not in the way the prompt has been addressed, because boy, oh boy, has it been addressed tenfold, I would say. So I, I picked the theme this week, and one of the things I was thinking about uh, recently was how there seems to be some discourse that keeps popping up every now and then, rather recently, about sex in cinema, and whether it's something that's gratuitous and generally unnecessary, and why would we ever want to watch to adults or perhaps even animals in, in this case, but we'll get to that later. Uh, but, wh- you know, why, why watch adults have sex with each other on screen? And wh- how does it advance the plot? What, what's it worth? And, you know, I think it's um, a perplexing question, and I think it's something that gets brought up a lot lately because there's really not much sex in cinema anymore, especially contemporary American cinema. So I thought, you know, with the Criterion channel, they're doing their erotic thrillers thing coming up. I was like, yeah, the time is right. Let's talk about it. Let's get steamy. That was my idea. And I didn't want to limit them to erotic thrillers or anything like that. I just thought, you know, let's, let's see what we got. Let's, um, let's just generally get steamy. And Boy, oh boy, did did we get steamy? Um, there is. We've got sucking. We've got fucking. We have got everything under the sun. And uh, beyond getting steamy, I gotta say, you know, I got a strong stomach, and <laughs> there is some stuff this week. Dear God, dear God, we um. Now might be a now might be a good time to just sort of say, you know, folks, if you uh, if you're one of those um. Listeners that likes to, you know, um, play the gauntlet for the entire family and, you know, introduce your your children to, uh, you know, discussions of great films. Uh, this week's episode may not be uh, uh, well suited for the uh, the under 18s, shall we say. Yeah, I think this is our first triple uh, X episode. <laughs> yeah, we've, bu- uh... Buckle up. This is NSFW. Yeah. Hardcore all the way. Without a doubt. Um Every content warning 
under the sun this week. So please be prepared for that, dear listeners. Well, let's just get to it and let's see how we can unpack this through the the the, the steam and the fog. Yeah. I'm, it'll be an interesting ride. Andy, you had the earlier of the two films, so tell us a little bit about what you selected. Well, I, when you gave us the prompt, kind of just like defaulted to uh, erotic thrillers, and, and maybe it was just because of sort of the way you'd pitched it, and yeah, I, you know, I know the erotic thriller uh, criterion, you know, um, program was was coming up, and I've I've been seeing a lot of people on, on Letterboxd. Uh, you know, logging so many of those those classics like Body Double and and you know Basic Instinct and stuff like that. So I think I kind of like defaulted there. Um, but then you know I, I I sat back and I was like I feel like I already played my my you know classic Hollywood erotic thriller card with you know one of the steamier ones yes uh, indeed gauntlet listeners may remember our episode in which i brought uh richard rush's the color of night to the table so i kind of you know not that there aren't you know different vibes within the you know the hollywood erotic thriller of the 80s and 90s but you know i i just was sort of like i got to dig a little bit deeper than that and it didn't take me too long to go back into um, the work of <laughs> of a of a man who uh, was was throughout his career very preoccupied with with sex and with um, some of the some of the 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 darker sides of sex and that filmmaker and writer is Alain Robe-Grier. Actually, you know, Ryan spends a lot of time on the podcast talking about Cormac McCarthy, you know? It seems like, you know, this is... <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, he's this is like the... the, the this is a, a slash Cormac McCarthy podcast, you know? Um, and I don't think he's your favorite author. Is he your favorite author, would you say? No. Okay, you bring him up enough. You He's know? one of my favorites. I really like him. I was excited about the new book. He's been reading that book forever. Yeah, you know? yeah. I feel like he's always reading the Karma for Garth. There's always. Like, but uh, I, I would say, you know, for me, I think um, Robe Grier, as far as you know, fiction is concerned, probably my favorite novelist. Um, I've read a lot of his books. I've read a bunch of his novels before I realized he became a director. I had sort of no idea about that side of his career. And then I saw last year at Marion Baden. So I was like, wow, Rob Grier, he wrote a movie. You know, this was like sort of, you know, college years for me. Uh, and then it was when I got to grad school that uh, one of my professors, we were talking about last year at Marion Baden, I was talking about Rob Grier's novels. And then my my this grad school professor, professor of mine, Dan Yakovone, was like, well, have you ever seen Robe Grier's movies? And I was like, he made a bunch of movies. He's like, he made some movies for sure. And I was like, <laughs> what are they like? You know, are they like Marion Bad? And he's like, well, the first one is 
And then they uh, they get pretty uh, sadomasochistic from there. And I was, of course, like, I got to see these movies. Let's go. And um, yeah, so um, I, I'm, we're going to dive a little bit more into that, into Robe Grier's journey. But, um, you know, the film, the one that I selected is from 1975, and it is called Playing With Fire. This film concerns, um, really, I would say it, it largely revolves around a, a trio. I'm, I'm trying to figure out the best way to sort of like enter into this. It's a puzzle box for sure. It is. I mean, that's that's Rogue Grier, and we're going to get into all his, his, you know, various puzzle boxes and riddles wrapped in enigmas and that sort of thing. But I guess you could say that this is the story of a father and a daughter. There's this sort of upper middle-class Frenchman named Georges de Saxe, who's a very successful banker and uh, has a lot of money, or it's presumed that he has a lot of money, and he becomes the target for an organization of would-be kidnappers who inform him that his daughter, his beloved daughter Carolina de Sachs has been kidnapped and they're holding her for ransom one million dollars or whatever the sum was but of course um, he finds this to be quite odd when his daughter shows back up at home with no knowledge whatsoever of any kidnapping scheme <laughs> uh, enter a mysterious figure, a private detective slash um, secret agent slash criminal slash pimp. God knows who or what he really is. But this is Franz, the mysterious Franz, played by longtime Robe Grier collaborator Jean-Louis Trintignant. And um, I guess Georges kind of hires him at a certain point to get to the bottom of all of this and uh, perhaps now to keep his daughter safe from these uh, shadowy would-be conspirators, kidnappers, and that sort of thing. So, Franz whisks Carolina away to a safe place, uh, a hideout of sorts. This hideout is a very... Complicated <laughs> sort of house whose interior is impossibly larger than its ex exterior, and this this space is some sort of brothel, I guess you could say. I think they call it a harem. A harem, yeah, a brothel, a harem, um, an impossible space filled with rooms and uh, living tableau of, of all kinds of sexual activities, perversions, kinks, uh, you name it, they've got it. And Carolina <laughs> now finds herself uh, locked in, perhaps, maybe not. This is Robe Grier we're talking about here. Uh, in this, in this sort of like Alice in Wonderland fantasia of all kinds of naughty, naughty behavior. Uh, where does it go? What does it mean? Did any of it happen, folks? Sit tight. We're gonna, we're gonna be, we're gonna be dealing with all that. But along the way. <laughs> 
directly addressing the prompt, you do get treated to uh, plenty of nudity, plenty of uh, sexy time stuff. I mean, how sexy it is. I mean, I'd leave it up to everybody. Everyone has sort of, you know, different tastes. You know, everyone, uh, <laughs> beauty and uh, lust are in the eye of the beholder, I suppose, at the end of the day. But, uh, you know, Robe Grier, for those who don't know, um, yes, I mean, um, S&M, bondage, fetish, sexual deviancy, these were things that he was very preoccupied with in his novels and, as I mentioned earlier, like, through his films. And and I guess, I don't know if it's too early to bring this up, but, you know, um, but again, for those who don't know, Robe Grier uh, has another collaborator on this film, uh, which is his wife, Catherine Robe Grier, who, among her other, you know, um, you know, areas of... of um, her other activities, uh, she was, you know, herself an author. Um, she was often a set photographer on a lot of his films, but I think partly just to be a technical advisor because Catherine Robegrier was, up until her death, one of, if not the most famous and well-respected dominatrixes, maîtresses in all of France. She was a legend in the BDSM community, and their fruitful working relationship is well on display here today with Playing With Fire from 1975. Thank you. Yes, yes, uh, various different tastes on display, but I will say you have a quite a steamy film. I'll, I'll note that Anise Alvina, the actress that plays Carolina, definitely a new, like, all-time cinema crush for me. So th thank you, Andy. <laughs> I guess you're welcome. <laughs> but, um, Marsh, boy, oh, boy, your film. Also, oddly enough, kind of a puzzle box uh, in various <laughs> respects, something you would assume would be a bit more straightforward. But I got to say, I'm going to need your help with a lot of it. Yes, indeed. So please, kind of, let's start the process. Tell us about what you brought. Well, I was really struggling trying to pick something. I sort of assumed Andy would pick an, an erotic thriller. So I kind of I kind of was like, I think I also initially was like, I'm probably going with an erotic. Yeah. Thriller. I think it was like my first text to you. So. so and, you know, so I was looking for more like offbeat options, you know, maybe something like The Beguiled or Teorema or, you mm. know, something kind of like art house and, and steamy and weird. But when Andy told me that he was picking Robe Grier, I was like, ah, well, the art house card is spoken for. <laughs> and, you know, with that pick as well, you know, I've seen a lot of Robe Grier's films, including uh, Successive Slidings of Pleasure, which is the film he made immediately before this. So I, I knew exactly what to expect. So yeah. I was like, ah, drop of the hard stuff, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and we sort of had this text conversation when it was like, you know, I'm looking at this, this huge list of films I made and I'm like, it feels wrong not to go with like, like the the craziest thing you yeah. know it's like you said you wanted it steamy and i knew that this particular film was going to bring that uh and then take it to to a whole nother level yes. and you know this film is is notorious in in certain circles and anyone who is i think of video store age or older uh will remember emmanuel the 
classic French softcore film from the early 70s, uh, which got released by Columbia Pictures in America, and it was like this huge international hit. Uh, and it was based on, you know, this uh, sort of like anonymous uh, novel in, I believe, the late 50s. And then it was revealed to be this woman, Emmanuel Arsan. And uh, then later it maybe turned out her husband wrote the books, of course, you know, uh, in that way that they're, you know, this male fantasy, I guess, in a lot of ways. But uh, they were like, you know, real life swingers, you know, these these people that wrote the, the quote unquote anonymous novels. Uh, uh, they got turned into films, and it got turned into a series of films and spin-offed into oblivion. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Emmanuel's like IP. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's massive. Yeah. It's yes. crazy. And it took a lot of, you know, took a lot of turns over the years, you know, from its humble origins as a kind of, like, sex-positive softcore film by Just Jackin or Just Jackin or whatever, whatever however you pronounce that. Um, you know, and then the Italians got a hold of it right yeah. uh, and that's really what happened you know the Emmanuel series in the middle 70s there was a rush to capitalize on its success and spin it off uh, into anything just using the name right and so these Italian producers created the Black Emmanuel series starring Indonesian Dutch actor Laura Gemser as the titular Emmanuel with one M this time to avoid copyright. Uh, so they didn't get sued. Yeah, the Italians had learned their lessons after like 10 <laughs> years of doing this shit with every other successful movie. Yeah, and so, you know, they made uh, they made a couple of these and, and eventually it, it came into the hands of Joe D'Amato, uh, a legend of exploitation cinema in Italy, uh, a man that came up, uh, you know, through Cinecitta from, you know, being like a 14-year-old working on sets all the way to being a, a peplum cinematographer to a horror director to a hardcore director. He did it all. He made hundreds of movies, and this was one of them. Um, this film, you know, really caught my eye uh, when I was sort of like, you know, like looking to see what people thought of it. And I saw on Twitter or on Letterboxd, that Will Sloan uh, had said that this film was the inspiration for Videodrome. Wow. And when I found that out, I thought, I really gotta see this movie, right? Oh. Um, and that movie, of course, is Emmanuel in America from 1977, which is the fourth installment in the Black Emmanuel series and the third starring Laura Gemser. Um, it's about, uh, in this series, Emmanuel, uh, unlike the French one, she is a photojournalist, uh, one of the great photojournalists of her era. She is <laughs> fearless. Um, and that's really the device uh, to serve us a mishmash of sort of like existing grindhouse genres at the time that are all kind of mashed together in this film. So it's like you take the softcore element, uh, you turn it into a little bit of a hardcore element, but then you add horror, 
and, and beyond, you know, in this very Italian way. They're aiming at, like, all these different audiences through these sort of existing uh, sort of genre templates. And I think, of course, it's worth mentioning Mondo. Yeah, right? I was going to say, it's got that, like, Mondo Cane vibe. Yeah. Yes, uh, and the Mondo films, for people who don't know, are sort of, like, ethnographic slash racist uh, sort of films. Exploitation like, docs. Yeah, they're just yeah. like exploitation docs and sometimes fiction, you know, things like Cannibal Holocaust and stuff like that sort of come out of the Mondo tradition. And so there is that uh, aspect to Emmanuel in America. I mean, the film, really to lay it all out there, uh, she investigates a bunch of shit. It's a travelogue, right? And they're just sort of like running around shooting on location in these places all over the world and then they're stopping for uh, sex scene gratuitous sex scenes ridiculous sex scenes uh, and disgusting, ev- and disgusting sex, sex scenes uh, <laughs> horrifying stuff you know that we will certainly get get into um, and yeah I mean that's it it's uh, it's extremely fucked and it's extremely scary um, and I will say though you know I think uh, Laura Gemser is actually a very like pleasant uh, performer I think her performance like within the context of this movie I think is notable I think it like has a good vibe to it because there's so many bad vibes yeah. everywhere else it's, it's kind of like she has no idea what movie she's actually in yeah <laughs> <laughs> and and a lot of the time that was true, you know, uh, they would double her sure. uh, for for the extremely gratuitous stuff, you know. So in that sense, like any actor, it's like you don't actually know necessarily what you're in, you oh, know. Yeah. And this is uh, a fucking nightmare, you know. So uh, that was it, you know. I just wanted to uh, to watch this this classic fucked up movie and i thought you know let's all do it uh let's all do it together you, you know, know it's it's well once i threw down the the rogue grier bdsm neurocore uh-huh. marsh was like i gotta just i gotta go one up on this one <laughs> pretty much and yeah he didn't go one up you uppercutted knocked me out and uh i woke up and had no idea what day of the week it was yes i had a very similar reaction were you done, Marsh, or did you? I mean, Sorry. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't know, it. you know. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you both. Well, two things I want to talk about right at the top. Just two. Just two. <laughs> just, yeah, two. just just two to get him out just of the jacking? way. Just Jesus. <laughs> so one thing that's immediately funny about this double feature is that the OG. Emmanuel is in Andy's film. Yep. yep. The actress Sylvia Crystal has a, has a very small role um, in the in the film you picked, Andy. And so I hadn't seen either of these films before, and I hadn't seen any of the Emmanuel films before. However, I'm, I'm very familiar with the Emmanuel series um, and it, and its various spinoffs. And it's funny because so like right at the top here, I want to get it out of the way. Like let's let's get the bond alert out in the open. That is how I've sort of like always understood the Emmanuel series as the sort of like alt bond experience in terms of like a series itself. This is like the sex porno version of Bond. Like this this series has 
dozens of films. I think it's maybe upwards of 90 entries in the Emmanuel series yeah, if you kind of like sure. really bring them all together. Well, because there's canon and there's non-canon. I mean, there's all kinds of... Right, because you know. it's like you look at uh, a film from 2012, Emmanuel Through Time, Rod Steele 0014, and Naked Agent 0069, like a very literal <laughs> Emmanuel Bond riff. But it was very funny because that the Bond connection ended up being my entry point or my way of like finding Emmanuel in America like accessible (laughs) because so many of those sequences feel like Bond sequences like Bond on location in these exotic places you know going around hiding behind corners taking secret photos getting the scoop doing some some special agent stuff and this movie felt very much like a special agent emmanuel film well and bond gets laid all the time so, exactly you know. well that was the other connection too it's like do- dozens of films with lots of fucking uh just in this case you see the fucking i think both of these films are about what's behind locked doors or perhaps unlocked doors sure both films are about snooping about seeing you know mm-hmm. and and they're especially seeing uh, acts of of sex and in other varieties yeah right well and i mean robe grier is also playing with you know certain uh elements of the kind of like spy thriller in his film with you know secret agents, secret organizations, and and that kind of thing, you know? I mean, Trintignant spends half of the film in the, you know, classic raincoat fedora and, you know, fake, hilarious fake mustache. So, I mean, they're, they're wearing, like, the... Uh, Robri is, of course, like, wearing that costume a little bit as well. Yeah. And, I mean, both of these films are very actively preoccupied with... BDSM and sadomasochism, specifically as it relates to something that has preoccupied Cronenberg throughout his career. This fine line of pleasure and pain uh, is something Clive Barker is obsessed with. And boy, oh boy, there are certainly sequences uh, in Emmanuel that kind of blow anything in the Hellraiser series out of the water, <laughs> I, I would say, and especially Videodrome. But I do think that it is something, and maybe this could be an entry point in, in talking about them, is that both of these films are toying with their anticipated audience's perspectives on what is pleasurable, what is painful, what is erotically exciting, what is just uh, perhaps immediately horrifying, right? That line is tread constantly throughout both of these films. What do you find erotic? What can you handle? Does this thing that is traditionally horrifying somehow turn you on? So I I guess I was surprised seeing that bridge between both of these films because they really do feel like they come from different planets, but there is something that does unify them as it relates to that. I think in that sense, too, then, it's almost like they have the same approach to story in in a sense, Mm -hmm. right? They are both films that are going... Uh, what are the limits of of story? Story, in a sense, is just an excuse, right? Well, yeah. I mean, in the case of Rob Grier, you know, he's he's consciously playing with that sort of um, that that element of of um, 
narrative uh, confusion. And uh, I think in the case of, of Joe D'Amato's film, it's just sort of, you know, it was just a second thought. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that's, a, that's a big part of it. And again, I think too, from what Ryan was saying, you know, I think right off the bat, one of the biggest differences being in that they're both, of course, exploring that territory you laid out, you know, Robe Grier is, is his film is, is depicting these things in an erotic way. Whereas, I mean, Emmanuel is pornographic. I mean, it's just, that's, Mm -hmm. I think a big difference between the two. Robe Grier is taking us right there to that, that sort of precipice and that edge, but, you know, doesn't quite leap over it. Whereas, I mean, well, it's what Linda Williams would call the, uh, what is it, Ryan? The frenzy of the visible, right? You know, uh, Rob Grier withholds that. I mean, I found some interview with him where he was just going on about Magritte, you know, when talking about this movie. So he's aestheticizing it like he does, you know, and in Robe Grier land, like everything is real and nothing is real, really. You know, it is like this fantasy land of images and sounds and do they connect? How do they connect? We're not sure, but we're sure about one thing, right? Which is what what Ryan said, like what he's doing in terms of pushing the limits of, of that desire, eroticism, and, and the, the you know the ideas that he'd been developing his his entire career, you know, yeah. up till that point. I mean, all things considered, playing with fire isn't a particularly explicit film. I mean, especially when compared to Emmanuel. No way. I think it's it's more just you know nudie cuties kind of sitting around with all of this other stuff implied about what's being done to them, how it feels and how horrifying it is. Porno of the mind. Exactly. Yeah. I think, and that's something that's really interesting about this movie in its approach to eroticism. It's like how, you know, you walk away from that film playing with fire, feeling like it was explicit, but in hindsight, when you actually think about the images that you've been seeing, it was primarily through the ideas and the puzzle box nature of it that kind of birthed that explicit quality in your mind. With the exception, of course, of, um, you know, when I think, like, when I, when I stop and I think, what, what was the most explicit moment in playing with fire? It's probably the moment of bestiality, but then when you compare it to the bestiality Whoa. In Emmanuel, uh, you know, here we go. Playing with fire might as well be a children's film in comparison. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, I got to say, you know, I didn't really have that many expectations of what I was walking into this week. I just assumed it would be like, you know, I knew it was going to be a wild time, but I still can't help but feel a bit surprised <laughs> that that we did have two films featuring bestiality in them. Uh, <laughs> that was like a, a very peculiar happenstance, <laughs> to, yeah, to say the yeah. least. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much detail our listeners uh, are, are hoping for here in, in this sort it's of true. breakdown of, of what we in, uh, sort of introduced. But again, you know, just <laughs> content warnings, you know, um, I'll say this, uh, you know, yes, in in Robe Grier's film um, again, and, and maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But, you know, yeah. when they're in this 
this sort of, you know, pleasure palace um, where they're going into all these various rooms. And particularly the character of Carolina is sort of, you know, again, like I, I think Alice is a really apt sort of comparison. You know, she's through the looking glass mm-hmm. and she keeps sort of like opening doors and, and entering spaces and sort of meeting interesting people who are you know, um, having fun. Uh, she does of course open one door and there's, you know, the, the image that we're, we're treated to is a, is a woman, you know, one of the, 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 uh, sort of like employees, shall we say of the harem who has a, a, a dog between her legs. Yeah. And yes, you see something there, but by comparison to what we see in, Emmanuel yeah. in America, it, it might as well be old Yeller. I mean, yeah, because... I mean, the, the, that moment of playing with fire feels like a classical painting. Um, yeah. And there's nothing resembling that in the sequence in Emmanuel without Yeah, a doubt. I'm sure the dog in, oh man, I'm trying to keep this clean. I'm sure the dog in, the dog actor in playing with fire, um, you know, they just had some like peanut butter or something for him down on the floor to kind of, you know. Yeah. To act with, but, uh, whoa, I was not, I mean, I was so unprepared. I didn't look into Emmanuel in America. Oh, I'm so sorry. I knew, (laughs) don't get me wrong, like, I knew that this movie had, you know, things in it that was like, whoa, and I'm familiar with Joe D'Amato. I've seen some of his other films. I've seen his, if you go on Letterboxd, his number one most popular film, I've seen that. It's a disgusting disgusting horror movie called Anthropophagus. Um, and and so I kind of like, I know D'Amato. I've seen a couple of his other horror movies too, you know, and I know the guy's a sicko. But Jesus Christ, um, wow, I was not prepared for this one. That's <laughs> Yeah, so we pretty much see a, a, a woman, you know, who similarly this is a, another sort of like eyes wide sh- shut harem situation, uh, maybe more explicitly so that here than in Playing With Fire, but uh, Emmanuel like, you know, infiltrates this rich guy's sort of like compound uh, and he's he's got all these women, uh, you know, by the by their zodiac sign, like yeah. whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it's this whole thing. Uh, and, and we learn that, that one of the women has been, you know, uh, getting it on with a horse recently and so there's like this whole tour that Van Deren the guy like the rich guy the Bond like, villain yeah the Bond he looks yes. like a Bond villain uh, and he's like giving this tour you know to some other to the Duke right <laughs> we'll, we'll get to later uh you know, and then they're like, all right, let's check this out. And they all watch this woman jerk off a horse. And this just goes on and on. Uh, and the squealing, my God, the squealing. You oh, know? the sound design in that film. And it's like Oof. cutting back and forth between everyone sort of like watching and like laughing and smiling. It makes you feel insane, you know. Oh, yeah. um, I was eating lunch at the time. It was uh. a big mistake. <laughs> It was a big mistake. <laughs> I was not eating lunch. Um, I did have to watch the second half of Emmanuel um, in the morning, and that's a hell of a way to start the day. Emmanuel in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, and look, that's, you know, uh, and that's I, not the worst part. No, yeah. it's not the worst part. Not and even folks, close. again, just, I mean, just so you know, you know, I mean, it's as Marsh described it. I mean, it's it's just be prepared. If anyone is going to listen to our conversation today and, and decide, like, you want to give it a shot, um, it's not acting. It's not, you know, c- c- like carefully 
um, sort of cropped in terms of its framing. Like you are literally going to watch exactly what Marsh just said. You're going to watch yeah. like explicitly. So just big time content warning there for. Anyone. Yes. Well, I guess <laughs> taking, taking a step back, please. Um, and, <laughs> and thinking about the experience I had watching these movies, I did think it was really interesting how, and this could just be more of like a personal reaction, but I was much more confused watching Emmanuel in America just on a narrative level than I was in the Robourier film, which is very actively mysterious and playful and purposefully confusing. And the plot feels refracted and as if it's like layering in on itself. And we've got actors playing presumably multiple characters. It's all very slippery. And it's a film that's designed to be confusing and is even self-aware of that fact. And there are references to its construction. And it's so funny that that film, because of how controlled it all is and how focused of an artist and as intentional as Robe Grier was while making it. At least that was my takeaway while watching it. This is my first Robe Grier film uh, that wow. he's directed. This is your first Robe Grier movie? It is. That he directed, yes. Very exciting. And I gotta say, I had I had a great time. Uh, oh, yeah. This movie is so funny, uh, which was like not something I was expecting. But yeah, Emmanuel... Whenever there were, because the film, kind of the way it feels, right? We have like a moment of narrative, and then we've got something explicit, and then we've got a moment of narrative, and then we slipped into soft core again. Emmanuel! Come on in, it's like chicken soup! <laughs> Get ready, this is going to be a ball. <laughs> That's how it goes, and we're constantly hopping around between all these places. But whenever a sequence that was a moment of narrative would end, I'd find myself just sitting there going, what? <laughs> even though it's like not even really that confusing. It's just, I, I, there was something about the way that film is constructed and what it does to your brain when you're watching it, that it's kind of hard, at least for me, I found to hold on to those details of the plot, even though it is, I would say, yeah, a, a simple plot. It really does, like, I get it though, you know, it's, the idea of seeing that movie at a, just a 24-hour theater in New York, you know, and just, like, catching yeah. some of it and being like, wah, and kind of moving on, you know? Yeah, no, I mean, again, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's really because this movie was constructed and designed, like, for that, and as Marsh described it in his, in his introduction, you know, to sort of just provide some very, very cheap... Um, thrills for for audiences and the the plot is this thing that's just sort of like you know draped over it to kind (laughs) of to connect the sex scenes and to connect the the various sort of like locales and that and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing but but yeah I mean like the the whole the whole I guess you could call it the the kind of you know, central conflict, if there is a sort of central conflict in this movie, um, about her being an investigative journalist. I mean, it, it's like, 
I don't, it's kind of like she doesn't really make it clear what she's investigating. And some of the investigations seem to be just sort of abandoned before they've come to any actual mm -hmm. conclusion, well, you know? Yeah, to me, like what's really funny about that, about those are, it's like, you know, it feels like all of the situations are her sort of being like, I'm going to expose this like pervert stuff that like high ranking people are, are involved in. Yeah. But then she just takes part in it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then takes yeah. pictures. Yeah. Enthusiastically. So <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, I guess gotcha, you know, right. like, because for her, she, I mean, and, and in a sense, like she is liberated. She says, so she's against marriage. She's living her life. Uh, you know, sex is no thing to her. She loves it. It's all good, you know? Um, but right. It's like, okay. So then she goes back to the paper and is like, there you go. Got him. Print this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got him. Yeah. I mean, and that's that was one of the James Bond connections I was feeling while watching it was how James Bond has his gadgets. He has his, you know, seductive quality, his suaveness. But it's like, yeah, Emmanuel, to get out of a tricky situation, uses her sexuality, both oh, as a form of liberation and also a form of calling out people on their their bullshit yeah on their bullshit on their hypocrisies you know yeah. i think one of the funniest early moments in the film is after she does this photo shoot and she's talking to one of the models who complains like her partner oh he never wants to have sex he's so stuck up and you know it's been really difficult and then emmanuel is she gets in her car and then if I'm remembering correctly. He just pops out of the back seat. Yeah. That's right. He's in the back seat and he's got a gun. And he's like, you know, we're going over here. I'm going to kill you. That I've got nothing else to do, but that's what I'm going to do. And then they end up in this spot and he's describing why he's going to kill her. Look. Look at that photo. That's Janet. And she's an angel. But she's heading for damnation as well. And it's all your fault. You are evil. You stimulate the basest, most inhuman instincts in people. Sex, shame, hell and damnation. Hey, listen, if we could talk about it, maybe I could understand it better. And he reveals his own trauma of having seen his mother nude and like all this other like sexual fantasia, like weird stuff that gets like inferred. And Emmanuel, you know, well, she uses her sexuality. You know, she unbuttons his pants and starts to introduce him to the joys of sexuality. And it makes his brain melt and he, you know, he flees. He can't handle it. Um, but it does feel like that to me that felt like that was one of her special skills amongst many to get out of tough spots. I think it's also funny with that guy as well, because, you know, the film opens with, you know, her taking basically naked pictures of this woman and, and she's talking about her boyfriend and she says, well, you know, he's a philosophy student, you know, <laughs> like, so that's his whole like problem is that yeah. essentially he's just, He's a philosophy. He's a philosophy guy. virgin. Yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's a virgin. Yeah, he's a philosophy virgin. Yeah, and that's the that's the Joe D'Amato thesis statement. You know, this guy comes in. There's no more values, ideals, morality, and then she just gives him a beige. You know, like yeah, that's the opening statement of this film, and that's how pretty much it's 
uh, it's going to proceed. I mean, yeah, it is funny, Ryan. It's like, you know, every action star has their, their trick that'll get him out of a tight situation. The signature move. The signature move. And yeah, in this film, you know, I never really feared for Emmanuel because I knew that she could always just go like, let's get it on. Yeah, and, yeah and, let's do and it. God damn, you know. She, you know, in that sense, is is unimpeachable. I mean, she can slip in and out of any situation. I was thinking, like, what if she was in Shock Corridor? That would be no problem for her at all. She would have gotten out whenever she wanted, you know? It's Simple true. Simple as that. It's true. And, I mean, playing with fire has a really incredible opening statement as well that kind of sets the tone for the rest of the movie, when we do witness that kidnapping at the beginning at the train station that we think uh, there's like this crazy narration at the beginning of the film that I, I had a hard time parsing. Et maintenant, Carolina, sans doute, déjà ressemble à cette adolescente qui fut sa jeune mère autrefois. Est-ce pour cette raison, le souvenir, ou bien seulement parce que les vieillards, dit-on, Hérode ou Balthazar ou Salomon, fils de David, aiment réchauffer leur âme à la chair des filles toutes neuves. Des filles toutes neuves. I found it fascinating, though, and maybe, Andy, you could, if you want to, you could touch on it a little more for, for my benefit. But they, yeah, there's, this, there's a kidnapping at the beginning of the film that is really rough uh, and scary and how it's like, you know, sexualizing a kidnapping. But then it does undercut it with its, its gag and introduces how the comedy works in this film because the woman who is kidnapped is thrown in this, this basket this like, or this big, like, chest uh, made of wicker. And there's all these labels on it of, you know, this is a live animal, you know, like... Animal be- vivant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, the kidnappers are just kind of, like, whacking it, you know, and talking to the police, like, ah, you know, the animal's not trained yet. Like, it's we're, <laughs> we're having a rough time. Um, but immediately, yeah, it was very clear. I was like, oh, this is what this movie's going to be like. Okay, like, I get it. Let's go. Yeah, and we get a series of these kinds of, like, I mean, I guess you could describe them as almost like slapstick. Yeah. Um, but again, in a, in a kind of, like, sadomasochistic erotic way uh kidnappings where this organization again that uh Trintignant's character France may or may not be a part of directly um where they're sort of like providing these women ultimately we will discover like to the harem at first we don't realize you know why this young girl was kidnapped but it does of course at that point it's there it's positioned there to sell then the idea of the the kidnapping threat like so we mm-hmm. know that it's real we saw a woman taken away but but throughout the film we will see a few other sort of amusing very awkward kidnappings <laughs> yeah. of various women uh take place i think i think the one that is to me, like the the one that I was sort of like laughing the most at was the 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 poor young girl being chased in the woods by some dogs, and you know there's this this woman being chased through the woods by dogs who are, you know, uh, basically just tearing off her clothes, and she's, you know, running with this very skimpy outfit on that's now in tatters, and and she stumbles into. Trintignant in his trench coat and fake mustache. And he's basically like, 
oh, how lucky for you, you ran into me. Oh, you need to get this taken care of. Don't worry, we've got a doctor right here. Don't be alarmed by our the presence of this doctor in the middle of the woods. We were here for a duel. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just, it's these really just goofy, absurd sort of things. And then, of course, the girl is given an injection for pain, which drugs her and knocks mm-hmm. her out, and, and they take her to the harem but yeah i mean like i think it's a it's an important thing to point out ryan because you know to me robe grier is a very very playful very playful writer and filmmaker and i think you know again it's a sort of thing with someone like him who plays almost entirely on the surface, you know, that that some people, because it's a puzzle, because it's a, ri- a riddle, and then because there are at times sadomasochistic things, there there is violence, it can kind of overtake what is for him essentially just a game, you mm-hmm. know? He's playing games, and his novels are often games, his movies are games for us to take part in, He's taking part in the game while the game is being played. You know, think about like Trans Europe Express, right? I mean, they're discussing the rules of the game in the middle of the film when we see Robe Grier, the director, you know? I mean, it is very playful and he's he's his target is similar, I think, on a certain level to like Emmanuel's, right? He's sort of poking fun at hypocrisy he's poking fun at morality he's poking fun at that at that kind of that kind of stiff reaction that people can have to this kind of material but of course through its sort of goofiness and its awkwardness he's letting you in on the rules of the game a little bit you know this shouldn't be taken too seriously like kidnapping come on relax you yeah. know and, like, tr- and they're, trenching they're, out it's fine you know trenching out's not the only one that gets to don the fake mustache either the ladies also get to don the fake mustache i <laughs> yeah. mean it does remind me a lot in a sense of Trans Europe Express. Like, that's a very goofy movie. Like, goofier than Le Mortel or goofier than some of the other ones. Uh, and it reminded me of that. And especially the sound. Um, and shout out to Michel Fanot, who was Robe Grier's sound organizer, they called him. Uh, and he did all of the soundscapes for Robe Grier's movies. And he basically, you know, they call them sound designers now. There's no such thing back in the day, right? That wasn't like a, a, a role or whatever. But this guy's like the OG sound designer. He would come on in pre-production and start working on the soundscapes with Robe Grier. And there's a lot of gags with the sound in this movie because he's always playing with like, like sound and image don't have to match, you know, necessarily like, um, he's just, again, he's playing with fire. He's playing with form, baby, you know? librement <laughs> 
original screenplay for um, his first foray into, you know, the cinematic, um, Alain René's Last Year at Marion Bad, with, which is probably a movie that more people would be familiar with Robe Grier from. Um, in the original screenplay, there were, there were actually like three columns. And one column was all the various sort of like camera directions. One column was all of the voiceover narration and dialogue, what little dialogue there is. It's mostly a series of like narrations. Um, and then a third column of just sound cues, right? So like even from the beginning, like Robe Grier was, before he became a director, was was so fascinated with, as you are describing, Marsh, like the separation and then interplay of those various elements, right? I mean, he wouldn't think, you know, in conceiving a shot that there's some sort of like a naturalistic approach to a sound design, you know? It's like, well, no, like, we are also going to think very, very carefully about what we hear with what we see and how this can either, you know, um, play with it or create um, a, a big sort of, like, dynamic kind of counterpoint. And, yeah, there's... Uh, I mean, you could sit and watch this movie... Uh, and just try to focus on those sound cues, and you would have yourself an afternoon there. You well, know? and extend that to the music. You know, I was not surprised to read that Robe Grier said that the film was organized around three pieces of music. And that's where, like, the original structure of the film comes from. So wow. when he was writing it, he's like, all right, it's the, uh, I have them written down because I don't obviously I don't know them. Uh, well, I know one of them. Uh, the fourth act of Les Trouvères, uh, the song Brazilian Carolina, and the German March oh, yeah. Erica, which again, as I think someone was mentioning earlier, some of the darker uh, forces at play in this <laughs> film. Uh, yeah, he he goes there right in terms of using this. German marching song in relation to sadomasochism and, and other things, right? So again, he's playing the again with fire on multiple <laughs> levels, sound and image, uh, and that's amazing. Again, Ryan, what you said, like this film is deliberately confusing, but it's made by someone who realizes that there's a logic to sound and image, and that makes yeah. it, it, it clear <laughs> as. Uh, uh, an experience of that an artist has created. You know, it's extremely thoughtful in how all, in how all these things work. And on the other hand, yeah, uh, Emmanuel in America is is the illogical, you know, mise en scène construction. You know, and, and or all too logical, perhaps. And, just magical, <laughs> you know. And yet. And yet, and you know, yet. there were a few <laughs> moments in Emmanuel where I was like, you know, it was, it was, I was like, this is some robe creation. There was sure. particularly when, particularly when Emmanuel goes to, you know, v Von Der's, Von Deren's. Von De Van yeah. Van, yeah. Van, Van, Van Der Van in Deren. the other movie. Right. But 
like it was spelled. Oh, wow. It was like spelled one way, and then people were pronouncing it another way, and then like it was like written. You'd see it like written, and it was like different than what people were saying. Anyway, because it's a mess, right? But like when they were at this guy, the Bond villains, like harem, you know, with all the 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 Zodiac girls and that sort of thing. At first, I don't know if you picked up on it, but like at first, when Emmanuel's there and she's sort of getting shown around and she's like meeting the other girls and then deciding to quickly have sex with a few of them. Um, the pool party. There was, yeah, like the pool party. <laughs> there was, I don't know if you either, either you heard it, there was a horse neighing yes. on the soundtrack. There were, throughout that sequences, before we get to the, you know, what mm. we've already described, the horse getting jerked off. <laughs> like yeah. Before we saw the horse, we were just hearing on the soundtrack, just like suddenly a horse neighing. And I was like, oh, it's like D'Amato suggesting, oh, the show ponies, that's what these girls are. You come and in the stable, you have a ride with them. Like, you could think that, but also the implication is probably that, yeah, while all this was going on, that woman just kept sneaking into the stables to like jerk off the horse, right? (laughs) But the fact that he included it on the soundtrack, like disembodied without any sort of visual reference on to, up to that point. We, we didn't see the horse, but we heard the horse well before we saw it. You know what I was thinking about? Like, like Le Immortel, which is his first feature. It, it has this amazing thing, Rob Grier on, on his soundtrack, where there's just this motif of like a ringing telephone that will... And, you know, Ryan, I hope from this point on now, you're going to just go watch every Rob Gray movie oh, you will, get your hands on. Yeah, but like, um, Marsh, you've seen Leo Martel, right? That that phone, there's like a goddamn fucking phone ringing for like 30 goddamn minutes. In my memory, looking back <laughs> on it, you were hearing a fucking phone ringing for like a half an hour before anybody answers the goddamn phone in the movie. You know, it's like you were saying with Emmanuel, you watch this movie and you you start to feel like you're losing your mind when you're watching it. Like, that's the feeling that Robe Grier, again, to your point, Ryan, intentionally wants us all to have. Like, you know, within the first five minutes, we have to start losing our mind. We have to start dispensing with... Our sense of reality, our sense of psychological realism, all that stuff, and and just give ourselves into feelings and instincts and gut reactions and and whatever else we want to bring in with us. You know, it's like the phone fucking ring. It's just like, yeah, you're losing your mind. Answer the fucking phone. And then finally somebody somebody does. But it's like that sound cue that will like slowly bring us into something we are then going to experience. We are already starting to question it, wonder about its presence, wonder about its relation to everything we're seeing. That's, of course, Robe Grey being artsy-fartsy, and Joe D'Amato is just like, wait for it, wait for it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I think the comparison of treating playing with fire as, as playing a game is a great way to describe how the movie feels and how you can interact with it. Because as confused as I was, I did feel like there was a design and that I was playing a game. While with Emmanuel, it felt like the film was flickering before my eyes, you know? And I I struggled to find, like, what's my role in this as opposed to just being a cretin in a late-night movie theater, you know, trying to, to get some kicks. Yeah, it's exactly that. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, you are with Robe Grier, you know, you're you're playing with the film, 
you're playing with other films, you're playing with, you know, ideas about what a film is, what, what our expectations are, uh, you're playing the game and you're playing it with others. Whereas, you know, at Emmanuel, you're just playing with yourself. I mean, like, it's really about, <laughs> about you and your, you know, whatever you're going to get out of that particular moment that is, of course, like, at times, like, incredibly charged. You know, again, yeah. it's like, Rob Grier wrote a lot about, you know, his theories, you know, before he even got into cinema and, and his whole idea of the new novel, you know, and, and this was somebody who was very interested in what he was doing with literature, with, with sort of trying to get away from a, a certain level of interiority and make things all very exterior and, mm -hmm. and surface oriented, you know, like pure description that is you know, at times like mathematical and it's like, wow, he just spent 30, 30 pages describing like the particular angle of objects on a table, you know, but not in any metaphorical way. Like he's describing painstakingly, like where every fucking thing is on this, this table, you know, where we go with it and what we do with it. That's, that's up to us. You know, here's the game board, here are the pieces, here's where they're all laid out. Okay, write your own, you know, write your own uh, title to this game or whatever, you know, but like, I, again, I would actually say a connection between the two. It's like Emmanuel is incredibly surface oriented in that regard. <laughs> There's like no interiority with these people with with anything we're experiencing. I mean, it is like what you see is what you fucking get, you know, from minute one to. Yeah, to I mean, it's 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 fascinating trying to parse a lot of the design decisions with Emmanuel. I think it's very funny when comparing these films, as you mentioned, Marsh, how Playing With Fire is structured around three pieces of music and how Emmanuel uh, features what I, 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 I love in exploitation cinema from the 70s, which to me, I, I kind of just like offhandedly refer to as the fake song, where the movie has like one pop song that I've never heard before and feels fake when you listen to it and they use it throughout the entire film and use various variations of it, the instrumental track, they like linger on certain parts of the song and it's that one song that just keeps coming back and you start associating it with all these different horrors and pleasures and the song just like takes on all these different meanings and like that is <laughs> such a funny experience for me with exploitation cinema but yeah i mean in terms of we have a we have a game we have everything that's on the table and playing with fire we see the pieces and there's all this intention and then it's a fascinating exercise watching emmanuel and trying to figure out why cuts are even happening and just how radically different pornography, uh, especially hardcore pornography, was cut in the 70s compared to now. And watching... Yeah, dude, there is a part of hardcore where he does a little, like, Eisenstein. You know, you, you don't see <laughs> yeah. that in porn anymore. He's, like, doing quick cuts on, yeah. like, cock and balls. Like. <laughs> right. Well, it's fascinating because none of them feel like money shots necessarily. So I, I, you see it and you're like, what are these fragments that were picked up off the floor? Like, why are we cutting to this particular angle of, like, an ass? And then, like, going underneath and having, like, these types of shadows. It's just interesting that, like of all the footage they probably collected that they were they were thinking like these are the great shots that we're going to string together for, for the audience because it all feels so sloppy i mean wow. joe damato is a sloppy filmmaker i mean like <laughs> you know uh 
you look at the very sort of opening shot, like how does this movie open? You know, if you go all the way back to the <laughs> very beginning of the film, you know, you want to talk about haphazard ugly. Like the movie just like opens like with some the sort cable of car. with a cable car, like entering the flame, entering the frame from above slightly askew, but there's like no lead into it. You know, it's like he doesn't open on just the empty sky. Like it like, Frame one is just like this thing just suddenly comes careening into the frame with no fucking justification for it. No, nothing. You know, it's right. just like we got to get in somewhere. Might as well be here. You know, I mean, that's what fucking anthropophagus is like. I mean, it's just like it's jarring. But again, it's it's. You know, minus the the dynamism of the cock and ball stuff, Marsh. The a lot of it is it just feels very haphazard, you know, because again, he's sort of like, well, you know, he's not an art house filmmaker. He's not trying to create some sort of thesis shot for the entire film here. He's just kind of like, let's get in, let's have her wandering around New York, let's quickly get to the TNA, like that's it. <clears throat> you know, travelogue porn, travelogue porn, travelogue porn yeah. horror. I mean, like know? in my notes, yeah. I was just like writing basically things like like following Emmanuel's journey, you know. And I would just be like, "Oh, great, here we go!" Like Emmanuel goes onto an undercover op, has sex. Emmanuel consoles other female sex worker has sex. You know, <laughs> Emmanuel goes to a, a fancy party, has sex. Like yeah. that's I mean that is the 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 movie. I mean that's it. Yeah, me. I want to address everything that's being said here. Uh in that you know, whereas Robe Grier may be making decisions based on uh you know a variety of factors, there's one reason uh the decisions are being made in Emmanuel in America. And these are these are economic reasons, Ryan. Uh, especially the soundtrack. I know you know that. Uh, the soundtrack, <laughs> there, there's a lot more than one song, I assure you. Uh, but there is one song that is played a lot. Uh, yeah. But one thing that these films uh, were doing were selling records. And that's part of the design from the, the minute they greenlit the film. Yeah. We need 28 fucking songs. I mean, there's a song every time someone has sex. There's a song every time Emmanuel's snooping around. There's a song pretty much any time anything is happening in this movie uh, and it's so they could yeah sell these shitty records with these shitty songs on them you know I mean there's some good funky bass lines but like yeah it's generic garbage uh, and everything about it is so shamefully uh, I don't know, you know, just that exploitation. It's yeah. so shame. It is the worst exploitation because as we talked about, like the incoherence of the film is because they're going like, all right, well, like people like seeing other places in the world, check. People like seeing softcore, check. People like seeing hardcore, check. People <laughs> like seeing uh, horror, check. And, you know, I got to say, it is also a game. It's a different game than Rob Grier is playing, but it's a game of, you know, 
one-upsmanship. How far can we go, right? How far, right. Can, especially in the climate that this was made. I mean, it's not like Joe D'Amato's The Only Sicko or Italian filmmaker making just the most horrifying stuff at this moment in time in particular. And especially, too, I also read, I don't know the case in Italy, but I read there were new laws in 1975 in France that even permitted some of sort of like what's going on in Robe Grier's film. Um, and this sort of like liberalization of the screen in the 1970s. Mm. I mean, pe people are going off. And it's, it's you know, yeah, it's part of that grindhouse circuit, the Mondo circuit. Uh, and it's just shamelessly like, let's take all these subgenres, just put them in a movie, who cares? You know, it's pure spectacle yeah. uh, at that point, you yeah. know. My first encounter with, um, with uh, Emmanuel was like, the the good old Skinamax yeah. days, you know, being like a, you know, a preteen or whatever, and and discovering softcore late night on Cinemax. Yeah, that was a classic. Oh yeah, and they had it was I guess like a series because I had to like look this up now this week and be like what the fuck because still it's seared into my brain that whenever like Emmanuel comes up, whenever I see Emmanuel or someone mentions Emmanuel or in this week, obviously when you picked Emmanuel, there was a, like a Cinemax, probably on Cinemax, God knows where it was, you know, uh, a series called Emmanuel in Space. And they had like a whole series of these like Emmanuel in like the future introducing, you know, aliens or whatever to, to sex. And the theme song, to this day has been just 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 carved into my brain and it's like it's like Emmanuel Queen of the Galaxy Emmanuel and I have had that stuck in my fucking head this whole week just Emmanuel Queen of the Galaxy I mean listen I like the song that's in Emmanuel in America. I like those kind of fake songs and the yeah. the fact that they repeat it so often it like becomes something new. It like blossoms into this like beautiful fake song that you can't shake. I guess one thing that Emmanuel in America does or attempts to do that is kind of fun is you know, it's like eyes wide shut angle of secret societies and yeah. like Epstein's sex islands. I thought the that party scene was pretty funny when they are all given pieces of a cake and they're looking for a golden peanut or they're given some sort of pastry and looking for the golden peanut and when a man finds it, like a woman jumps out of the cake and it is just this oh. total bummer oh. scene of like them pawing this woman well she's like covered in icing and so yeah. everyone starts licking her well specifically the the first person the he does man, yeah. is the oldest man in the room you know yeah. imagine your grandfather suddenly just licking some 18 year old covered <laughs> oh in cake God. icing from head to toe and like, then right on cue uh everyone starts taking their clothes off yeah, and emmanuel's just snapping away with her secret camera bracelet you know <laughs> yeah just snapping away guys like tearing off her clothes she's like still taking pictures <laughs> the dedicated journalist she's she is. so good yeah but yeah. again this film's trying to do a lot of different things and never really committing to to some of them <laughs> um but dear god does it commit to its horrors when the film does divert into that territory and 
you know, we've been talking about the Mondo tradition and, you know, trying to give a sense of what this film does feel like when it enters into horror territory. And I got to say, the the scary stuff in this movie, like, I I understand that Cannibal Holocaust was a bit more widely released and it was all a part of its campaign strategy of coming across as this really horrifying object. But this movie blows that movie out of the water in my opinion when oh. it, when it goes and diverts into its into the snuff territory because that is what Emmanuel is eventually investigating and what we are quote unquote treated to in this film is Joe D'Amato's approximation of what a snuff film might look like and that's what Emmanuel is uncovering with these secret societies of all these freaks um, is that there is production of snuff films happening and there's a few moments where we do have to watch these snuff films eventually enter into the world and production of said snuff films and boy howdy yeah (laughs) it's the real video drum i mean yeah you know so again we should point out emmanuel in america she spends less than 30 minutes in america but she does go certainly to the Caribbean and she goes to an unnamed Caribbean Island where uh, a white guy's her cab driver and there's American flag hanging on the street. Not sure what's up with that. (laughs) Uh, But she goes to this sort of like health spa where, you know, it's basically for middle-aged women to like have, you know, whatever their desire uh, come true. And we get a hardcore scene with Tarzan cosplay, right? Um, We get Zorro cosplay yeah. as well in a scene that's like basically from a, a Rome Grier movie, the Lazaro bit, you know? Yeah, th- kind those, of in- mo- those moments were nice. <laughs> yeah, kind of inspired, you know, but she's snooping around like Bond at this resort. Yeah, right? and it's it's kind of like like an escalating series of like kink and you yeah. know, sex perversion. Like, with each room she kind of goes to, things are getting like a little more Hardcore, a little more intense, a little more seedy. And, you know, the the logical end, of course, you know, when you keep, keep, you know, going deeper and deeper into the, the you know, the, the, the dark desires of, like, you know, human sexuality, you will, of course, eventually, yeah, get the full-on, like, stuff film. Yeah. So yeah, she, you know, she sees this couple in bed and and the woman is is watching on a projector uh, you know, just again the real video drone which is like these military guys just like, you know, committing the worst acts uh, you can imagine. What was it? A nightmare. A dream. I saw something horrible. Yeah, there's like almost kind of a vague sort of like production design element to of kind of trying to make it look like Vietnam yeah. a bit, you know. Vietnam South slash South America. Yeah. Yes. Something, you know, it's it's this like j- military tropical. jungle vibe. Yeah, yeah. Again, that sort of like Mondo thing, making it this other place, this scary other place that this is happening, you know? And that in her dreams when she's dosed by the by the senator, you know, that she she like sort of as Ryan said, like enters in into this world. And you can imagine David Cronenberg uh, watching the 
this movie. I mean, anyone, you know, would, was going to be horrified. I mean, it's, yeah, it's full on body horror. I mean, it's just. Yeah. And like, you know, I learned in, in some of my research, I think you guys will appreciate this, but like that scene is basically the origins of Fulci Zombie because uh, it's the same producer. And like the guy right after this was like, Fulci, hey, make a make something like this, you know, but like whatever, we're going to steal Romero's title, Zombie. Right. <laughs> zombie. Right. And I mean, like, and and I'm telling you, like, D'Amato only like two years or three years later would make Anthropophagus, which is considered by many people to be one of the most disgusting video nasties ever. It's basically about a, a, a cannibal on this like Greek island. And it like, I mean, the I finally built up the courage to watch it, you know, like the two years ago or something like that. And I mean, like that movie like yes like this is him warming up to what he's also going to do and i will i will put it this way anthropo vegas has disgusting very vile things in it i mean like there is a moment where this cannibal like sets himself on a pregnant woman and and literally like cuts out the baby and then like eats it and you Whoa. see it you know i mean it's it's nasty but i will say this i've seen that and i that was of course like gut wrenching for me but like I think the, the the shades of what you're seeing in this, even in their sort of brief duration compared to Anthropophagus, which is a feature film, I think some of the stuff in this is even more like horrible than than Anthropophagus. I got to be honest well, with you. Well, yeah. you know, now we got to find out what mm-hmm. happens in Joe D'Amato's Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, 1977, <laughs> and also perhaps Emmanuel and the White Slave Trade, 1978, also oh, Joe D'Amato. So again, you know, he, he's building up to, right, even the Emmanuel does can- cannibal holocaust movie or whatever, uh, the cannibal subgenre. Like, again, uh, it is, yeah, the most shameless exploitation uh, cinema you can imagine. But you got to give it up to D'Amato. And also, as we always praise on this podcast, the Italian craftspeople. Oh, yeah. My God. (laughs) To make something that unsettling took a lot of work. The effects, very impressive. And we all know that the Italians can do that, and they did it here, and it'll make you throw up. It's it's so fucking... In the middle of a porno. Yeah, in the middle of a porno. uh, Just, yeah, the most, like, vile shit imaginable. Uh, And it's done with, like, you know, it's it's got, like, affected film stock. It feels like it's from another movie. It's not the gauzy Emmanuel vision. It's, like, a grimy uh, sort of stock, you know? Uh, They're nice touches there but ultimately yeah in the service of just yeah something uh that will probably haunt me for the rest of my life and you know i think i think it's it's also with a lot of these because i've seen a lot of these you know like you know stepped on italian you know video nasties and stuff like that and i think that it's also a key component of like its queasiness is the fact that this is from like like 78 you know 79 80 81 like a very like just brown, gross era, you know, uh, of visual styling, of costumes, of production design, film style. I mean, just like every, the world looks like 
gross and broken and bad and it's like falling apart so there's just also that element that except you, for that marlboro coffee table that bill's got in his manhattan apartment <laughs> oh man give me that where can i order that <laughs> you know what's well, funny is like this is meant to, on a certain level you don't just think that this is meant to be some sort of like like again with the title like this sort of critique on america an american culture you know and what little there is in there really this is again just i mean it does a, go all the way to the top you know she does seduce the senator who introduces yeah. her to uh snuff and perhaps even takes her there in reality yes in a in a robe griean sort of uh, uh labyrinth bit of, yeah a bit of uh, ephemera like did it happen did it not happen um you know what's also really funny about the senator character? Because this is where she discovers, you know, of course, the direct connection to, like, who's producing the snuff film when she uh -huh. suddenly is like, I got to figure this out. I love this bit with the senator where when she goes to D.C. and she does this sort of, like, sting operation to 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 find him and get him, uh, they're, like, walking through Washington, D.C. They're in actual D.C., folks. The capital. For, yeah, for a day shoot or whatever. And they're just, like, walking along the street. And the senator is giving his sort of, like his sort of, you know, theory on, like, America and why it's falling apart and why it's broken. And what's so deranged about it and so Italian and so clearly disconnected from, like, American actual, like, life and culture at the time, because he's just meant to be this, like, senator, right? And, they, and, and he goes on this whole diatribe basically about how, like, America's falling apart and the countercultural movement is destroying our country and blah, blah, blah. And, you know... It's like, this is the late 70s. Like, we are well beyond that countercultural movement. And I love that his whole diatribe climaxes with him saying, you know what we need? We need a good war. And I'm like, Vietnam's like two years. We're just out of Vietnam. Or like, we just ended it. What do you mean we need a good one? We lost. It's like, it's, and it's not like a joke. I mean, it's just like, well, this is what the guy would say reacting to the hippies and everything. And it's like, we just got out of the war. We don't need a good, we had But Emmanuel it. herself is a stark reminder of the sexual <laughs> liberation of the 60s, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think that's an important, like, again, you know, um, you know, way to sort of like bring these two films. I mean, we've brought them together a bunch, but you know, there was an interview with Catherine Robegrier sort of reflecting much later. I think I watched an interview with her from 2013 where she's kind of reflecting on this movie playing mm -hmm. with fire and she's looking back on it and, you know, sharing certain experiences, you know, so much are amusing and, and somewhat funny. Like for example, um, Philippe Noiré, we haven't mentioned, but, but, you know, Georges de Saxe, the banker, the father, the, 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 the patriarch figure of this thing was played by Philippe Noiré and Philippe Noiré was sort of like talked into doing the movie by Trintignant. Trintignant loved Robe Grier, yeah. loved working with... This thought, was his fourth go-around. Yeah, and he's just like, man, mm. it's a ball. You know, it's great. He's he's cool, and we have a lot of fun, apparently. And, and Noir was like, okay, sure. But he's like... <laughs> it's more of a tavernier guy. <laughs> yeah. Catherine Robe Grier was like, yeah, Noir just didn't really seem to understand what was going on and didn't really understand Alan, just did not have fun and and was, was not enjoying his time on the set. Um, but... And yet... Yeah, and, and yet, yet. <laughs> yeah, and yet George DeSox has plenty of fun. But the one thing she said it, it, to start was like tie up her interview. And kind of looking back on it, and, and going Ryan to your 
you know, something you said in your intro, basically, you know, about sexy movies today, sex in cinema today. Rob Catherine Robert was basically just like, oh, you could never make this movie today. Like, this movie doesn't exist anymore. Movies like this don't exist anymore. You know, at the time, for us, playing with these things, again, this sort of the game of sex that they were playing, she was like, this was an era of sexual liberation. This was that era of the sexual revolution and of of men and women of of all sort of orientations starting to to come out and and be sex positive and not to sort of like hide behind that kind of morality and she's like that's gone today you know that's gone you know and and the funny thing that she said is you know i think it's because we live in an era of surveillance now you know and and you kind of think about that you know you reflect on it that that idea of of you know in this kind of like epsteinian you know way of like well if you're going to have sex you got to keep it under the table or whatever and obviously you know the the most serious crimes that they're committing notwithstanding but i think her reflection being more about all of us and our our view of sex as like fun and a game and something that we can play with you know that 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 liberation for her she sees as very as as basically non-existent particularly in the cinema you know particularly mm -hmm. in in how the cinema does it and i almost look at emmanuel as kind of like betraying that liberation to an extent right sure. because it just what happens things just keep escalating where it's like you know what all this sex leads to it leads to this it leads to this yeah. kind of thing you know like that's the ultimate conclusion that that it escalates so quickly you know again in the scene with the senator where she's trying to sting him think about that kind of escalation She's like, okay, I gotta get him to pull out one of these movies. Got any hard shit? Right. And and he puts on a porn, and they're just kind of watching a slightly like rough porn. And then she's like, I was expecting something a little bit more sensational. And so he goes, Oh, okay, great. And then he puts on that a thing that we have all described <laughs> as like the most horrifying shit we've ever fucking seen. Right. There's no there's no like building up to it. It's just <laughs> no. like, oh, so you like rough stuff. Here's rough stuff, you know? <laughs> I mean, well, it's I, a betrayal of of the the again, the very important defined procedures in SM, in BDSM for safety, for the safety of both parties that are involved. It was all so awful. But what a turn on. <laughs> I guess she is playing a character when she says that. But yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I can't disagree, <laughs> certainly in, in that perspective. I mean, uh, yeah, again, I mean, it's a betrayal of the original Emmanuel, you know? It's like all this macabre shit mix, mixed in, you know? I mean, it, it truly is a, a very cursed. Uh, object. Yeah, I mean, it's know. a doorway for D'Amato to like just, yeah, throw in, throw in extreme stuff in the same way that like, you know, actual explicit, you know, shall we say like unsimulated sex acts. That's the, the polite way of putting it, you know, like that stuff is only kind of like hinted at. It's the same thing with the violence, you know, the violence is also very artificial mm -hmm. in playing with fire. Yeah, the there's, blood there's, is just red paint. 
you know? Right. It's a suggestion. Yeah. Flambe. It's, it's good. Yeah. The flambe, dude. It's Godard, right? It's not blood. It's red, you know? But like, yeah, the, the flambe. I mean, again, it's goofy. Like, it's so over the top. It's, it's like, how can you not understand the artificiality of this? But again, in Emmanuel, it's like, no, this is real fucking violence. And it's, yeah. it's nasty. It's too real. You know, and I think to your to your point, Andy, I think for all of Rib Grier's tricks with narrative, I found there to be, in my mind, kind of a coherent narrative in playing with fire at the end of the day. And which is also where it becomes cemented as this thing that uh, literally views sex as liberation in a sense, uh, because Carolina... Uh, escapes, you know, the harem after poking around a bunch and just, like, hearing her footsteps for, like, five minutes. Um, she walks through these, like, cor- endless corridors, you know, rub Grier shit. Um, but she, it turns out, may have sort of manipulated the situation the whole time to escape from her father. And she sort of like drives off with Trinting Yacht and he makes a joke about not understanding the screenplay. Uh, But like, ultimately she escapes, she gets away, she gets, I think, what she wants. Because if I'm understanding sort of like how it all works in the end, we have the trio, Noiré, Trinting Yacht. They're both trying to control the situation, control, you know, sex, control, uh, all that stuff, right? Uh, They're trying to control the situation, and we think they're the ones who are maybe the primary movers, and in the end, you know, she slips away. Yeah, that's true. I I do love in playing with fire when he acknowledges, like, I don't understand the screenplay, because that's something I've always found really enjoyable with more experimental leaning cinema is just the act of watching the film and imagining these actors. Cause I think one of the things that is like an immediate turnoff for a lot of people with experimental cinema is the way that people behave in it sometimes. And they go like, Oh, what is this? Like, what is this? You know, if whether it's Brechtian or if people are just being weird, people are being weird in these movies, a knee jerk reaction for a lot of people is, well, this isn't realistic. No one behaves like this. Like, what is this? Like, I hate Mm -hmm. this stuffy stuff. But I think that that is one of the ways that you could enter into these types of movies for fun and as a game. And I like how you mentioned that the the actor that was playing the sax didn't know what was going on. And this movie kind of, or at least just wasn't jiving with it. And I think it's funny imagining these actors receiving instruction. I think about that with Godard films all the time is like, what did he tell them? (laughs) And like, what do they think is happening and how all of this is going to be cut together? You know, and I think that that's fun. And I think that's a way of liberating the film from feeling stuffy. And this film calls so much attention to that, that it never feels that way. When you have someone announce, oh, I don't understand the script. Or some of the great fourth wall breaking moments where he has a line of dialogue that just doesn't make sense in English and looks at the camera and says, ha, untranslatable wordplay. You know, like no matter what country that movie was playing in, it wouldn't work. It only works in French. Like that Mm -hmm. stuff is so good. Yeah, I mean, again, I think Robe Grier is, you know, like another one of uh, uh, my favorite filmmakers, Godard. At at the end of the day, he's a a prankster on a certain level, you know? He likes, he likes sort of poking fun, particularly at stuffy, 
upper class people, you know, and, you know, academies and, you know, formal staid conservative elements of literature, of art, of cinema, of sex, of society, and that sort of thing. I mean, this is the dude that was, you know, much later in his life, given this massive honor of being voted into, like, the, the French, you know, the French Academy of, like, literature or whatever, like, uh-huh. a, a, a very, like, very, very big honor. But he basically, like, got kicked out slash left because he refused to wear the robe and the sword because he was like, this is fucking stupid. You guys are dorks or whatever, you know? Like, that tradition, that that pomp and that that foolish ceremony is particularly the kind of thing that he's often making fun of, you know? And, and sort of, or again, turning into a game and just kind mm-hmm. of being like, yeah, this is a game and, and it's ridiculous. And we're all ridiculous. The repetition that goes on over and over again, people going through the motions, repeating things, repeating things without even understanding why they're repeating them, mm-hmm. losing themselves in that kind of thing, you know, it's like he would get more and more, I think, kind of, um, you know, I guess in the way that you describe it, almost like experimental with it as he would go on through his career, because there are like moments in this where it's like we're seeing a character enter a room like four different times in a row. We're suddenly seeing yeah. a gesture Trinty repeated. Got handing off his jacket to the butler like six times in and a they, row. Yeah, and, and switching guy. it up. Dude, and again, like you're saying, Ryan, like, how, I wonder how he's directing him. Like, look at Trintignant in some of those, and he's like cracking a smile. And I'm sure on set they were just like, let's do it again, switch it up. And Trintignant is fun. like, yeah. yeah, just kind of like improving with it. And it's like, the very fact that that would be in there and then someone would be like, but what does it mean? The switching of the suitcase, what does it mean? Like that, that person scratching their head trying to figure out what the switching of the hands on the suitcase means is exactly then when he is laughing because he's sort of imagining, I think, someone that's trying to get to that deeper meaning of the mm-hmm. suitcase. And he's like, there is no fucking meaning. <laughs> like the meaning is me riling you up. He wants you to take it as you'd like to take it. And and if you just were amused by it, then hell yeah, that's what you should walk away with. think another way that that I would read this film or could read this film is that it is about a young woman's sexual awakening and it's her going into this this again this fantasia of what is sex look at all the different ways you can have sex and at first she's very uncomfortable and alarmed and scared and she sees everything around her as very menacing but the more times she sort of experience things the more she wanders around the more she begins to get a little acclimated you know she's not just cowering in fear in the room and there's this whole element with a lock on the door and her being like i'm locked in and and i have no way to get out of the room and then 
her father coming in at a certain point. Maybe her father, maybe a man who just <laughs> looks like her father. It saves me. <laughs> what lock? There's no lock on here, right? You actually aren't being held prisoner by anyone. And again, these people are all here because they're playing the game too. They want to be here. You don't understand this stuff. On the outside, it looks like people are being tortured, but... Everyone's in on it. They're all signing up for it. That's maybe, again, one way you could read it. You could also, to me, go all the way back to that opening sequence. And if you look at what he's saying, he's talking about this man and his pen and his writing. And he's talking about this prince, this wistful old prince in his room. And I think you could also read this whole thing as... The 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 uh, the paranoia and the anxieties of a father looking at his 18 year old daughter and being afraid of what's going to happen to her out there in the world and the men that are going to take advantage of her. And is my daughter a harlot? What's going to happen? You know, because the whole idea of men coming in and taking his daughter and taking his daughter away from him and his fear of that. And again, as you said, the control he wishes he could have over his daughter's sexuality, his daughter's purity. So again, there's there's so many different ways you can read it. It's by design, and that's what would would encourage you to like stay with it. Right. I mean, I think one of the biggest differences between these movies is that it does feel like everybody in Playing With Fire, most of them, are having a lot of fun. And they're having a good time. And <laughs> yeah. when you mentioned except for Noiré, but yeah, yeah. except for Noiré, but, but that you, works with his character because he's like no, perpetually flustered. You it know? does. I like it. But yeah, the game feels like it extends to the cast. And when Trintignant is, you know, cracking a smile, it feels good. And in Emmanuel, despite how erect some of those cocks may be, it is it it really doesn't feel like anybody's having a good time. Uh, on the production of that film. And it's funny, you know, I think one of the reasons I found Playing With Fire so accessible kind of takes me back to one of the, for me, like a foundational way of appreciating film. and Or at least it was like a new door had opened for me and I had remembered in, in college, shout out to Andy Roche being in his experimental film class. And at the time, I even had like fancied myself as someone who was very open to experimental cinema, but I do think I still had a lot of things that frustrated me when I watched certain films. And it's the simplest thing, but I'll never forget when he had some stuff on, though I will say I forget the film, the in particular film that it was, but he had like nice. presented, he, he showed this movie and it was like, at times it was a little frustrating. It, it had all sorts of different qualities that you would associate with just the subjective experimental viewing experience. And the, the class was really flustered and Andy just kind of said, doesn't it seem like they had so much fun making this thing? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah. yeah, it really does. And I feel like that, changed the way I watched movies. And I felt that while watching this, it's like, you know, it's that preoccupation of feeling like you have to answer what is the suitcase and attaching all these meanings to the symbols. And sometimes you just gotta like loosen up and let the experience happen to you and imagine a bunch of creative people getting together, collaborating on something and having a really great time while doing it. And that's honestly sometimes the joy you find in it. Um, and then Emmanuel in the other direction. I think Joe Amato had a good time. Joe, Joe <laughs> I, no, I think he did. Yeah. I'd be I'd be curious to speak to everyone else involved. Getting up close there, a little handheld, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I want to uh, mention too, Andy, that you know one of the great jokes in playing with fire is when she enters the building for the first time and she's being shown through the main lobby. A bunch of people are strewn about and they're frozen, as in Marion Bad. And anyone who's a Rob Grier fan, you know, they're watching and going, oh shit, everyone's acting like last year at Marion Bad. And then the character, right, Carolina goes, why is everyone acting all weird? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah. she calls it out. And then, you know, they're like, oh, they're resting. You know, we work very hard here. We have a good time, but we work hard. They're resting. But to me, that that lays it all out in terms of his playfulness and his jokes. I mean, there are multiple callbacks to different films of his in this film. And, you know, one of the things I read was that this film was actually... Uh, sort of produced rather hastily, like it came about quickly, and that it was really like one of the more improvisational works that he'd made. Mm. And the author that that I was reading this from was like, "Well, go back to Limortel, where he was like every single thing was like dictated, yeah. you know, from above." And here he is, ten, fifteen years later, just playing a little loose with it. Yeah, you know, it's an opening up for sure. I mean, and that's. And that it's obvious, right? Because, you know, his experience with Marion Bad, like he and Renee didn't get along super well making it, you know? And and I, I believe it was because Robe Grier was sort of like in that process was like, that's it. I got to make movies. And, and, and I think he wanted a very particular way. I mean, he wanted to make his own movie while he was making Marion bad. Yeah, and that's the, problem. and that's the brilliance <laughs> of the film is that they were able to sort of like work together so professionally on that film. But yes, Lea Mortel then is clearly, it's like him working through all the shit for Marion bad and being like, this is what I was on about. This is what I was trying to get at. But yes, yeah, like from there, even to like trans Europe express, he's, he's, He's loosening up, you know, he's he's being more playful. Yeah, that's like a lark, you know, it's sort of like a genre riff. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, did you, I, the one, the only, well, I, there's a couple that I haven't seen, but the, the one that I've been meaning to see for a very long time that I, I haven't um, is the movie he made with Fred Ward. Yeah. It have only exists in a shit copy. I have it, the Blue Villa, but I have not watched it because I want to see it like for real. Yeah, because you know? that's what it's described. Everything that I've heard about it is that it's like Fred Ward is kind of just like wandering through the shots, like yeah. clearly openly being like to almost rope Grie behind the camera. Like, what am I doing here? What are we doing? Like, what's going on? Like, yeah. and that's, that's of course, again, like by design for Robe Grie, but like, we do need you know, to see that. Yes. We, we, we do love yeah, Fred Ward fun. on this pod and yeah. you gotta People bring have him told in. me it's like very good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Robe Grie is a genius in my, in my opinion. I mean, he really, he really is a huge influence on my life. I mean, again, like, you know, there's been various parts of the, the podcast where we've, we've mentioned like our first feature film that we made together, Marsh, not your first feature, but our first feature working together. And I don't even know if Ryan even knows this story. You might know the story, but you know, when I first started working on the script, the original script for our feature orders I just did a straight adaptation of uh, Robe Grier's novel In the Labyrinth. Like, I wrote mm. a straight adaptation of In the Labyrinth and then was like, like, first of all, like, I don't even know how the fuck I'd get the rights to something like this. I mean, who? I did a half-hearted fucking search and then was just like, no, 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 no. I got to not do the the the, the typical thing of, of, like, making somebody else's movie. Let's... 
I got to take what I love about Robe Grier and what I love about this novel, and we've got to do something else with it. You know, we've got to take it to another another place. But like, you know, Robe Grier was a was a, a a turning point in my life in terms of like what I wanted out of storytelling, what I wanted out of films, you know, and like even just listening to him talk about the kinds of movies that he likes, you know, and and that sort of thing. I was always like, yeah, that's exactly what I'm looking for, you know, like Robe Grier felt that like Antonioni was like the greatest filmmaker ever, you know. No disagreement. Because he was like, Antonioni's films are, are open. The conclusion of an Antonioni film simply opens you up. Well, then ironic that Emmanuel in America opens with a sort of an homage to blow up, right? <laughs> I suppose. I suppose. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I guess it's pretty sufficiently steamy in here. Whew. You know, I feel the heat. Yeah. Which movie turned you on more? Which movie turned you on more? You well, know? I fell I fell in love with the lead of uh, playing with fire. Mm. What an angel! Lots um, of cutie babies in in you know men and Emmanuel women. Emmanuel herself, the yeah. one with two M's. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Sorry. You know what's amazing though? I guess about this double feature is that these films were like aimed at kind of like overlapping audiences (laughs) and I do kind of find that fascinating Mm -hmm. you know Um, when you think about it like that and you know what's what's odd too is is playing with fire very famously had like no home video release and no real release outside of France where it like was a huge hit uh, because Mm. of uh, what's her name Emmanuel right yeah and that sort of happened. That was an accident. He'd already cast the two women from Emmanuel in the film when Emmanuel hit right at the box office, and then they were like, "Oh, sick! Like yeah. we're gonna cash in on this." And they did. It just didn't really get outside of France, you know. But uh, at the end of the day, it's the '70s, right? There's a, a, a big market, or they were trying to have a big market, you know, as it relates yeah. to uh, the pleasures of the flesh. Yeah. Well, uh, these were our steamers. Yeah. Triple X, baby. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Yeah. Uh, what are your uh, What are your picks, Ryan? What would you say are some? Uh, yeah. Quote unquote. Yeah. What do you want to offer our listeners? You know, for potential like a date night movie. Steam you know? bath. <laughs> you know. I mean, a steam bath. Emmanuel does have like a little sauna steam bath scene. It does. A, it does. A couple of them. Yeah. Yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. playing with fire does too. You know, Noiré washes his daughter. He but he's not, but yeah. she's not his daughter in right. that scene. Hard to tell. Hard to tell. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, well, I think the thing that that both of these movies reminded me of, as I mentioned, was that kind of Cronenberg, Clive Barker fascination of the line between pleasure and pain. And I think that that's something really fun that cinema can do with sexuality. Uh, And that's why I like horror movies so much. And that's why so many horror movies are designed with a bunch of sex leading up to the actual release when someone is killed on screen and kind of like overlaying that effect of seeing something horrifying and then feeling a sexual rush, that kind of adrenaline that you get uh, to make it like a similar experience. So when I think of like films that do that, because these films reminded me of those, um, we've obviously talked about Videodrome, but Crash, David Cronenberg's Crash is the great steamy movie. 
you know, adapted from the the Ballard book. The book I actually don't particularly love, but maybe I read it too long ago. Um, but I just yeah, love that movie up. so much. Um, I think the movie is is so remarkable. I mean, it's it's got James Spader, the king of the erotic thriller from the 90s, getting in <laughs> car accidents. More with, the prince of the erotic sure, thriller. Sure, the prince, the prince of the erotic thriller. Getting in car accidents uh, and then fucking in the midst of, of those car accidents. It is a amazing film. And then, you know, last, I think it was last week or one of the previous weeks, Andy, you had had recommended Claire Denis' Beau Travail. I particularly love Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, which features some amazing scenes of people having sex and literally eating each other at the same time. Uh, that is some, some really remarkable somewhat steamy stuff but her whole again you i think you had recommended her whole filmography as it relates to paranoia you could also recommend claire denise entire filmography as it relates to steamy scenes and films oh yeah stars at noon was steamy as fuck yeah it certainly was i I would probably say sensuality more even maybe than sexuality not sure trouble every day isn't very sexual you know but like (laughs) i mean boat is sensual you know yeah. like trouble uh, every day also has the funniest moment of ejaculation i think in any movie ever made um, oh yeah see we had some ejaculation this week on the pod but yeah thinking about the that moment in in trouble every day it feels like claire denis had a big bottle of lotion and just like smacked <laughs> the top of it so it <laughs> shot out across the room extremely funny um but those two films and i mean of course cemetery man um but i've talked about that film ad nauseum so i would say people you know check out crash and trouble every day if they want to really be troubled by um some some steamy stuff which, you know, I'm glad you brought it up. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but in my in my further investigation into the illustrious career of Joe D'Amato, uh, one of the things I discovered is that, you know, when he formed his own production company a bit later, you know, one of his contributions, Ryan, to the world of cinema is that he gave, uh, it's Mikel Soavi, right? Isn't it mm-hmm. Michael Soavi? I can't remember he, how to pronounce it, but yeah. He gave him his start. Uh, wow. His production company uh, basically, you know, made his first feature. So, so I got you wouldn't Joe have had that. Yeah. yeah, you wouldn't have had that without Emmanuel in America. You know. Well, yeah. It's just, it's it's right. <laughs> Sometimes that's just the way it goes, I guess. <laughs> well, thank you both. Um, dear God, what a week, Marsh. You're up next. I, I took us into, uh, accidentally, I seem to have taken us into some, some dark territory. Where, where are you leading us next? Where, where are we going? Well, in the last week or so, uh, I have, as I often have in my life many times, uh, become Hong Kong-pilled. I've just been just like mowing down some Hong Kong classics this past week, and you know, thinking about pivoting from uh, the darkness, you know, here <laughs> here today, uh, I want you to bring me your heroes of the East. Bring me martial arts, kung fu, what have you. Just pre-heroic bloodshed, no guns, right? So, yeah. you know, do what you will with that. Hong Kong specifically, or... 
Well, we, uh, you know, three Chinas allowed, I suppose. You know? I was just thinking China, yeah. yeah, yeah. Three, three Chinas allowed, yeah. Yeah, Taiwan, King Hu, Taiwan, anyone, you know? Sure. He, he went over there. It's all good. You know, I have a black belt in Taekwondo. That's like the fake martial art, though, right? Uh, no. <laughs> it's a hell of a... It's a great martial art. Yeah, it's a fake one, dude. No, no, no. Judo's not, like a fake one. Knocking people over. Oh, you, that's Seagal, dude. That's chucking guys. Oh, dude, yeah. you know, careful, dude. I knew a guy that got choked out by Seagal in Japan once. No, yeah. Taekwondo's full of, you know, breaking boards and roundhouse kicks. You got it all. Well, maybe we'll see some uh, Hunga Shaolin next week. You know, the real shit. You yeah, know. I love it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Morte dans un accident d'automobile qui ressemble trop d'isles gendarmes à un assassinat. La voiture a pris feu d'un coup. Avant qu'elle ait pu sortir, pieds et mains liés sans l'étonne. Anéanti dans les flammes. C'était donc pour cela que mon revolver, au nom de serpent, a été retourné ce matin par code postal. 